Today was the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Walking in lockstep, members of the British Armed Forces carried the Queen's coffin into St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. After the crown was removed from the top of her coffin, she was lowered into the royal vault. At the conclusion of the ceremony, the family members and people gathered in the church sang the British national anthem. You could see her son, King Charles III, visibly moved. Earlier on Monday, the rest of England also had the chance to mourn the Queen. Her state funeral service was held at Westminster Abbey. About 2,000 official guests attended, including more than 90 world leaders. And outside the Abbey, the throngs of people there fell silent for two minutes to honor her death. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 19th. Today, what this pivotal moment means for the future of the Commonwealth. We talked to our London correspondent, Carla Adam, about the scenes in the UK today. And later, we have a conversation about how the world is reassessing its relationship with the monarchy. Right, so this is for our podcast. Can I, can I take your name as well? Catherine Reed. Okay, this is my daughter, Angelica. Uh, and you've, how long have you queued for? Tell me about that. We queued for, what did we queue for? Eight hours? Yes. Um, yeah. So how long were you in the queue for? So, in, in total, it was 14 hours, but that obviously I went round twice. And you're one Completely. of the very... And we were very last. We were very, we were very lucky to have made it over the line because we... Um, decided very last minute to come and then we all keep to, kept each other going in the queue yeah, people in london spent hours waiting to see the queen's funeral procession carla says the spectacle was massive there were thousands of people who um, camped overnight or arrived in the wee wee hours of the morning um, to, to watch a little bit of the procession. And thousands of people were crammed in behind these barricades. There were, there were sleeping bags. A lot of people brought toys or games or chess sets just to pass the time, you know, because they'd been camping out for a day or two. So they'd packed in behind these barriers uh, to watch uh, the, really what was a, a spectacle to see, you know, hundreds or perhaps thousands of, of uh, soldiers marching, um, you know, the coffin being carried. People are predicting that'll be one of the big biggest television moments in history. There are big jumbotron screens in Hyde Park. There are cinemas across the country that are showing the funeral. So there's a lot of different ways that that people are, are, are watching today's proceedings. And why is it important that the Queen is being buried at Windsor Castle? Like, what is the significance of this place to her and to the country? Yeah, so Windsor Castle is known to be one of the Queen's, or maybe if not the Queen's, uh, favorite royal residence. Um, I remember actually visiting Windsor Castle about five years ago and the staff very proudly saying, well, Windsor is her home and Buckingham Palace in London, well, that's the office. Mm. Um, and indeed for decades, so London is the main official residence of the British monarch that in, in Buckingham Palace. And then on weekends, the monarch, the queen would spend her weekends at Windsor Castle. So she 
she was a country girl. She is someone who loved horses and dogs, and, and she was often spotted riding horses uh, in, in the Windsor Park uh, near the castle. And I thought it was really telling that she moved to Windsor Castle during the pandemic, but also after restrictions lifted, she never moved back. She never moved back to London. She showed no sign of wanting to move back to London. And also by being buried at Windsor Castle, she'll be being buried next to her husband, Prince Philip, who died last year. So tell me about some of the conversations you've had with people about how they have felt about this funeral and about this final goodbye. I think maybe some people are even surprised at at their own emotions with it. And, you know, the Queen has, a lot has been said about her continuity, how she was always always there for 70 years. And, and that, is, that is a long time to, to be in the role. And I think for many people, it's, it's almost like wallpaper, you know, it's just something that's always there. And I think, you know, when I'm talking to people, they're sort of processing that, that change. And, and she was also a relatively popular monarch. I mean, even if you're ambivalent on the institution itself, you know, even people who aren't sure if they, you know, want to have a monarchy, Many of those people still like the queen. I mean, she was quite a, a popular figure. And I think that there's, you know, there's sadness, there's mourning, there's reflection on Britain's colonial past. Um, and, and, there, and there's also a lot of just also getting used to the new king and saying the word king and saying God save the king and trying to figure out what kind of king he will be. To be honest, I think that King Charles will be respected equally but in, a, in his own way, you can never possibly repeat what the Queen has done. I spoke to Jess Fox. She's in her 20s. She's from York. And I talked to her early in the morning, and she was standing close to Big Ben. When King Charles goes through his reign, people will respond differently, but that's not necessarily for the bad. So, I mean, it will, I have no doubt that he will be a brilliant king, and... He'll just be brilliant in his own way. You know, Carla, I think a lot of people have been looking at the last week and a half of coverage and events, you know, both in the UK and around the world, that there was so much attention on this woman and on her oldest son and this family. And there are a lot of things that are happening in the world right now that you could argue are more serious and have much higher stakes than the ascension of King Charles III. What is your sense of why people feel like it actually is important to have these funerals and these processions and these ceremonies to, to honor this moment? I think it's very important to to British identity. And there is definitely a Republican faction here, but the majority of people still support the monarchy. And she has been a figure on the world stage for 70 years, you know, her first prime minister was was Winston Churchill. Her last one, Liz Truss. She's had 15 prime ministers while she's been queen. I think it's 14 presidents. I mean, just the breadth of time that she stretches. And I think for for a lot of people, she was kind of the link. You know, she she's been the she's been the thread that sort of weaved through post-war Britain, and and that it really means something to a lot of people. There are polls that show that a third of people have either met or seen the Queen. And I, I thought so many people had their own wow. personal stories of meeting the Queen or seeing the Queen or having the Queen put a medal around them or having worked for the Queen. And that really struck me, just how many people had some kind of personal connection. 
In the queue, I was talking to someone about why he was queuing. He was about 27 years old, and um, so he was in the younger generation. And he said he thought that part of the Queen's appeal was that she rolled out the red carpet for everyone. She traveled extensively, she hosted, she entertained. And I think a lot of people, when I was talking to them, just are, are very thankful for that long, long 70 years of service. Carla, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Martine. Carla Adam is the London correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. After the break, we talk about the future of the Commonwealth during King Charles's reign and beyond. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. For many people, the death of Queen Elizabeth signifies a kind of inflection point in the UK. It's something that my colleague, columnist Ashan Theroar, has been writing about. I think it's also important to stress that we're in a moment now in British politics where there is such turbulence, such negativity surrounding the elected governments that the Queen and the institution that she sat atop did present a kind of uniting, anchoring force for many Britons. And so her passing is felt extremely keenly right now at a time of Brexit, at a time of various political party intrigues. And I think part of the grief you're seeing in Britain is a reflection of a nation with deeper issues as well, trying to find something to hold on to. This time is also a moment to look back at the Queen's legacy around the world, specifically as it relates to the British Empire, and now the Commonwealth of Nations, dozens of countries affiliated with the Crown, the majority of which are former British territories. It's important to look at the Queen in her own right as opposed to the Queen as this icon of empire. It is also very hard to separate that because what is the Queen without being an icon of empire? And I think especially to people who come from countries that existed for decades of centuries under the British yoke, that is a legacy that they always see first front and center. In this moment, as we think about the legacy of, of the queen as a, as a role and less as an individual, what are the questions that we and people around the world are asking when it comes to that legacy and its relationship with colonialism and empire? Well, this is the thing that's so interesting about considering what Queen Elizabeth did and didn't do. Obviously, she came to power at a moment when Britain's empire, of course, was much bigger than that it is now, but it was already in various phases of contraction. She came to power five years after India and then the newly created Pakistan gained independence. The colony of India was by far the most important imperial possession in the British Empire. So that was already gone. 
And then in the years that immediately followed her accession to the throne, Queen Elizabeth presided over a situation where anti-colonial uprisings in Kenya, in what is now Yemen, in Cyprus, in what's uh, now uh, Malaysia, all took place. All were handled with extreme amounts of coercive force and brutality mm. by, by the British security forces. You saw a wave of decolonization in Africa in the 1960s. And throughout this, the Queen didn't say or do very much. We know for a fact that uh, in some cases, especially in Kenya, the British carried out systems of counterinsurgency that involved de facto concentration camps, mm. that involved the disappearance and torture of tens of thousands of people. And none of this was something that the Queen spoke to at the time of her reign, of course, and only has been really brought to the forefront of the British conversation many, many decades later. It was just in the last decade that we saw a political conversation about the British legacy in Kenya, for specifically, and a form of apology issued by the British government. The British government recognizes that Kenyans were subject to torture and other forms of ill treatment at the hands of the colonial administration. The British government sincerely regrets that these abuses took place. Now, we can turn around and also say that the Queen's role at this point in time and throughout her reign was in many ways fundamentally an apolitical one. She's supposed to stay above the fray. It's the British government that is elected that is carrying out these policies, not the Queen herself. And while it's important to celebrate her for what she did and for the various people that she affected and touched, and that may define how we see her now, but it's also important to recognize that that silence also goes with her legacy too. So, Sean, I think everything that you're describing makes a powerful case for why would any other nation want a relationship with the monarchy or the empire, like thinking about that legacy and thinking about so many people who were hurt by it. And yet there is this relationship between so many countries and the monarchy now, whether it's in the form of the Commonwealth or nations that still consider the the queen the, the head of state. And I think that even that, like how that relationship works is something that is a little confusing to many Americans. So can you talk about the ways that there are these like complicated connections between countries that feel both profoundly wronged by the monarchy, but also still want to put this lady's face on their coins? I'm glad you brought up the Commonwealth. There seems to be in the American conversation about Queen Elizabeth a bit of a misconception about what the Commonwealth is. Sometimes when I hear Americans talk about Commonwealth countries, it's as if Queen Elizabeth was the head of state mm -hmm. for all these countries. That's not the case. The Commonwealth is a voluntary association of, I think, at this point, some 56 countries and territories, all of which, yes, uh, at one point belonged to the British Empire. So, for example, like India or South Africa, like those are countries that are still yes, part exactly. of the Commonwealth. And they are republics. They are the Republic of India. They have their own symbolic ceremonial presidents. But they are, belong to the Commonwealth uh, out of choice. And so I think there are only 14 of these 56 countries where uh, the British monarchy is still at the symbolic head of those states. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to stress that, in my view, the Commonwealth matters more to the British monarch, who gets to sit at the top of it, than it does to 
many of the countries uh, that belong to it. Mm-hmm. It's not a particularly important geopolitical bloc. You know, they have a regular series of games, which allows... Yeah, I was going to say, like, the Commonwealth Games. Like, they just yeah. get to play sports yeah. together. And, uh, Is that know, the limit of, like, well, what, it, what it means to be part of the Commonwealth? Right. As someone who's, from a, who's originally from India, a Commonwealth country, it is one of the places where India actually wins medals in sports. So that's <laughs> nice to watch. And then beyond that, I would not say there is uh, particularly that much that links these countries together. You don't necessarily have countries that are all aligned politically in terms of their worldviews and, and their systems of government. As an economic bloc, it's not particularly relevant to anybody. So it was very relevant to the queen because it gave her a, a symbolic sense of of presence around the world until the last couple of decades. She was constantly touring various Commonwealth countries and feted in various ways by other dignitaries in these countries. And so I think there is a conversation emerging now about the relevance of the Commonwealth as an institution. Should it be that the the British monarch remains the head of it? There is a debate Mm. about whether maybe someone Oh, interesting. You could have like a Commonwealth without a queen or without a king. Yes, perhaps. Maybe you could have somebody who is... uh, you know, a former significant politician mm-hmm. in another country, say India or Nigeria or mm-hmm. what have you. Like we elect our own, you know, head of the Commonwealth. Exactly. And and that would be a pretty 21st century way of looking at yeah. what the British colonial legacy is. What are the other ways that we are seeing at this moment with the death of the Queen and the ascension of King Charles III, this renegotiating or, or questioning of like, what should this be going forward? Well, there is a concerted movement now that's sprung up in recent years, especially in the Caribbean, of uh, a handful of countries either that still have the monarchy uh, at the head of their states or are part of the Commonwealth. These countries want to either reevaluate the relationships with Britain and or press for claims for reparation Mm -hmm. uh, for the legacy of not just empire, but specifically slavery, Mm -hmm. which Britain brought to this part of the world. And that is a very concerted, growing conversation. It's been embraced by the heads of states in some of these countries, or the leaders of some of these countries. You saw uh, last year a major moment when Barbados removed the queen as their head of state. Uh, Rihanna was there. Rihanna was there, and she was given a medal. And Prince Charles was there. I was so deeply touched that you should have invited me to return to Barbados and to join you on behalf of the queen at this moment of such significance for your remarkable nation. And he gave a speech, not necessarily apologizing, but also recognizing the deep histories of exploitation and abuse that shape uh, Barbados's relationship with the United Kingdom and, by extension, the crown. The creation of this republic offers a new beginning, but it also marks a point on a continuum, a milestone on the long road you have not only traveled, but which you have built from the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. And that was an important statement from Prince Charles, now King Charles III. And that may set the tone for some of these conversations going forward. But specifically when it comes to the question of reparations or even having 
a much more explicit apology than what we saw from then Prince Charles, now King Charles, back in Barbados. I mean, is that something that the monarchy is actually going to do? I mean, it seems like in many ways um, they have a real history of saying, like, look, we don't apologize. We just do our own thing and we um, we're not going to like kowtow to what people want us to do. But at the same time, I wonder if there's like a question of survival here, that the only way that the crown can continue to be respectable going forward is if they do start grappling with these questions of apologizing and reparations. And I think what's going to be interesting to watch in the years to come with King Charles is the extent to which uh, he can avoid being entangled in both a global and domestic culture war. Because I think, especially now with the passing of the Queen, uh, somebody who's such a long-ruling figure, someone who's such a direct connection to a different era in global politics, that absolutely a whole new set of conversations are going to emerge, not just in places like the Caribbean, but even, say, in Canada or in Australia, Hmm. where there are pretty strong Republican movements as well, and a recognition that we don't need to cling to the anachronism of this old relationship. And so those conversations are going to happen at the same time as different types of conversations happen within Britain about Britain's legacies of empire, of racism, of what their society stands for now in the 21st century. In my view, there is a lack of recognition in the United Kingdom of the extent to which their rise on the world stage as fundamentally the most powerful country in the world at the end of the 19th century, how much that was directly created by their exploitation, Mm -hmm. domination over large parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting to see where the king fits into that because uh, the king is in some ways, and I use this word very advisedly, a bit more woke than people realize. Uh, I have not heard anyone use the word woke in a sentence with King Charles III. I I use it very advisedly. But he is much more forward-thinking on climate change, for example, Mm -hmm. than much of the British right. Mm -hmm. He has made some important statements about the British past, although I don't think it rises to the kind of rhetoric people in parts of the decolonized world would like to hear. Mm -hmm. But it's also not necessarily on on the monarchy as an institution to lead with the apologies, particularly from the British government. And that is a different political conversation to be had and probably won't be had in any kind of significantly quick way. So so you're saying that, that Charles, you feel like, might be able to actually navigate some of these thorny questions because he has a little bit more of a sense of awareness of like, I get that there are reasons why people might not like like our family. Yes, and that that may lead to a conversation about what the British monarchy should be. Should it be this institution that is so suffused in iconography and symbolism of empire in the in the carriages, gold wrought carriages and plundered diamonds mm-hmm. and so forth? Or should it be something a bit different? You know, I, I heard someone from the British left talk about how Rather than necessarily getting rid of the monarchy, they'd like to see a more pared-down monarchy, a kind of Scandinavian monarchy, because, of course, many countries in Northern Europe also maintain their own monarchies. But, but they're know, not the, you know, I don't know who the king of Norway is. They're more likely to be riding bicycles than going about in horse-drawn carriages. Yeah. There, there's a, a humbleness about what they are and what they represent that you could see a King Charles slowly pivoting in the years to come. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, when you 
think forward to the future. When you and I are sitting in the same room, (laughs) having a conversation about the legacy of King Charles III whenever he passes, what do you think we're going to be talking about in terms of his, of how he oversaw these questions of commonwealth and monarchy and and the countries that are now renegotiating their relationship with with him as a head of state. I mean, what do you think these coming years are going to look like? I have a difficult time reading the colonial tea leaves on this. But I, I think it'll be interesting to watch a couple of things. Yes, uh, how he handles the further contraction, not necessarily of the commonwealth, but of the realms that still maintain the British monarch as their sovereign. I'm assuming if these things happen, he would do a go about it with a degree of grace and acceptance. Hmm. I think it would behoove him to probably take a more activist role on issues of climate change, and maybe that'll be the legacy he wants to uh, hang his hat on. But that may also be quite controversial as a monarch in Britain. But I think the greatest legacy would be if we don't actually have to worry about talking about his legacy 30 years from now, as in the relevance of a monarchical figure in one small European country, and I say this with, as a bit of a jab to a diminished Britain, is not that relevant to Americans, is not that relevant to a broader global conversation, and maybe that's the, the reality he will gently usher us toward. Ishan, thank you so much. Thank you. Ishan Theroux is a foreign affairs columnist for The Post. His column is called Today's Worldview. This story was produced by Sabi Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Rena Flores and Lexi Diao. Coming up on the podcast this week, we've got an episode about the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico over the weekend. It has caused catastrophic damage, and it's left almost the entirety of Puerto Rico without power. But the fallout from this storm has also demonstrated how residents there never really recovered from Hurricane Maria five years ago. Boys. A esta y todas las escuelas de, del país, que el gobierno tenga más compromiso y más entrega con las escuelas. Porque la mayoría de los niños, que, de los padres que se van, que no, no tienen esperanza, no encuentran trabajo o si estudian una vocación, no le hacen la vida difícil. Para poderse quedar aquí. ¿Y qué les queda? Irse. Irse fuera del país o irse a otros pueblos donde pueden encontrar alguna, alguna posibilidad. That's what you'll hear later this week. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. 
Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.